0: Grab a Bible and turn to Jude, second to last book in your Bible. We learned a great deal uh, last week from this book, and I actually had quite a number of really good conversations with some of you uh, about that message. And uh, it was really edifying for me personally to to go back and forth with some of you who had uh, uh, really been meditating on that uh, time in in the Word last week and and, and mulling it over and and going over in your minds some of the things that Jude had spoken about. And I I just want us to dive right in this morning as we continue to go through this very unique letter And I wanted to bring us up to speed for any of you that might have missed last week. And so, briefly on your outline, in a more rapid fire here, I wanted to to bring us back to where we left off last Sunday. And that is, we spoke last Sunday about the purpose of Jude. The purpose of the letter of Jude. And that purpose on your outline is this. To guard the Christian faith guard the Christian faith and strengthen your own for the danger of departure or apostasy is real. The purpose of Jude, guard the Christian faith and strengthen your own for the danger of departure or apostasy is real. We said last week that Jude would not give a threat that wasn't a real danger. He would not give a warning to the Christians that he wrote to if that warning had nothing behind it, if it didn't potentially cause risk to the people who heard the warning. He knew that departure, that apostasy was a possibility for the people to whom he wrote. He had already seen it happen before. And so he wrote to these Jewish Christians sometime in the year, uh, around the time of 65, 66 AD, that they might stand firm against all of the false teaching around them. But we might wonder, what is apostasy? What does it mean to apostatize? On your outline, if we were to define apostasy, this is what we would say we would say simply it is departure departure from god's truth in general or from one's christian faith in particular apostasy simply defined is departure from god's truth in general or from one's christian faith in particular in general refers to what we see like in romans 1 where paul says all men All women, all mankind, have a knowledge of God. Paul says everyone does in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to the end of the chapter. He says everyone has a measure of the knowledge of God. And he says when they depart from that, there's consequences. And so on the one hand, apostasy can be departure from God's truth in general, or it can mean more specifically to depart from one's Christian faith, in particular, I've referenced there Second Timothy four ten, where Paul speaks of a man named Demas, or, or Damas, who departed from Paul, who de- who left the faith, who abandoned the faith. That would be apostasy, in particular, of the Christian faith. There's apostasy in general from God's truth. There's apostasy in particular of the Christian faith. So in this sense, all unbelievers are apostates. For they have all departed from what they know to be true about God. And surely we know that there are some Christians who have apostatized. For if they could not, then the warning of the book of Jude is pointless. Why write a letter warning Christians about apostasy if a Christian cannot possibly depart from the faith? Of course, a Christian can apostatize. That's why we have Jude. But the notion that Christians can apostatize led us to a very important question last week if a Christian apostatizes, that is to say, if a Christian departs from the faith, where do they go when they die? And on your outline, to bring us again onto one page this morning, I wrote this. Christians often assume that all apostates go to hell. Write that down. Christians often assume that all apostates go to hell. But... Our eternal destiny is determined by grace through faith in Jesus. Once we're regenerated by faith, we can never renounce or revoke the free gift of eternal life. But while those Christians who apostatize or depart still go to heaven, all apostates will receive judgment. Let me say that last line again. But while all Christians who apostatize or depart from the faith will still go to heaven, all those who apostatize will receive judgment. And that, in fact, is the title of this part two of our series in Jude. All apostates receive judgment. What kind of judgment? Hell well, that depends on whether or not they're a child of God or not. You see, we don't go to heaven or hell because we apostatize or not. We go to heaven or hell because we believe in Jesus Christ or not. Amen? We, let me say it again. We don't go to heaven or hell because we apostatize or, or we don't. Rather, we go to heaven or hell based on the one issue of whether or not we've trusted in Jesus as our Savior and so when I write that, that paragraph there, that we look at three, three lines down in, on our outline, Christians often assume that all apostates go to hell. That's not true. Those who didn't believe in Jesus go to hell. But our, our eternal destiny is determined by grace through faith in Jesus, Paul says in Ephesians 2.8. Once we're regenerated, once we're born again, once we've trusted Christ by faith, we can never renounce or revoke the free gift of eternal life. John 10 says that no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand, says Jesus. I've given you there John 10. should be 28 to 29, not 28 to 28. And then 2 Timothy 2.13 in which Paul says very plainly, even if we're faithless, he remains faithful for God cannot deny himself. That is to say, even if we come to faith and later revoke it, or later renounce it, or later renege, or or later say, I don't want any more of this, 2 Timothy 2.13 says, God remains faithful to you for he cannot deny himself. He can't take away the free gift of eternal life that he gave to you the moment you believed in his son. He can't take it away. Why? Because he is a faithful God. Even if we're faithless, he remains faithful to us. He cannot deny himself. That last line though on this paragraph, but while those Christians, that should be plural, while those Christians... Who apostatize or depart still go to heaven, all apostates will receive judgment. What kind of judgment? Well, here we're talking about Christians. So we're not talking about hell. Of course, the greatest kind of judgment is the judgment that's given to unbelievers to those who never trusted Christ to those who knew God's truth like it says in Romans 1 but who never sought after God to the unbeliever to the unbelieving apostate they will receive the greatest judgment hell they'll experience God's judgment in its highest highest form but let's be clear hell is not the only way in which God punishes those who depart from his truth. Any apostate who departs from God's truth, both Christian or non-Christian, can expect to receive a measure of judgment for their decision. That judgment comes in many forms this side of eternity. There's such a thing as physical judgment, physical discipline. There's such a thing as emotional judgment, mental judgment, psychological judgment, there's financial judgment, there's sexual judgment, I could go on. There are many, many ways in which God can look upon those who have apostatized, both Christian or non, and who can see how they've left him, how they've forsaken him, how they've looked at his truth and said, yeah, I don't want that. There are many ways in which God can get our attention and does get our attention. Though sometimes we keep suppressing it. We keep saying, oh, that that couldn't be the Lord. Oh, this situation in my life, that that couldn't be the Lord trying to get my attention, is it? This thing I'm struggling with, that's not the Lord trying to grab hold of me, is it? Romans 1 speaks of that judgment in part. It talks about how the unbelieving apostates, how they kept denying God's truth, denying God's truth, denying God's truth, and then three times, Paul says in Romans 1, so God gave them up. He gave them up to the futility of their mind. He gave them up to their sensuous desires. He gave them up to their debased mind. He judged them on earth. He gave them exactly what they were desiring. And for them, it was great judgment. And so when we say that all apostates receive judgment, we mean anyone, Christian or non, who departs from God can expect to hear from God about it. Let me say that again. When we say that all apostates receive judgment, we mean that anyone, Christian or non, who departs from God, they can expect to hear from God about it. And this is the message of Jude today. This is the message that we read in our portion of this letter today. No matter who you are, if you depart from God's truth, expect to hear from God about it, Would you stand with me as we read from the epistle of Jude? We're going to read chapter 1, the only chapter, verses 1 to 7 today. 1 to 7. Jude 1 to 7. Let's take a look at what Jude writes. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago Were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. He is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner, to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. You may be seated. we already covered verses one through four last week i wanted to read them again to give us some context we're just looking at five six and seven today short and sweet and yet i'll still go long why is jude talking as he is in verses five six and seven why is he speaking about these stories he lists three stories one in verse five one in verse 6 and one in verse 7. Three stories from the Old Testament. And we have to wonder, why is Jude doing this? Well, remember that Jude is warning Christians, Jewish Christians, about the rise of many false teachers in their midst. Just look at verse 4. He says, many men have, risen, have come in unnoticed. And they're beginning to creep in to the community and pull people astray. And Jude, Jude was very concerned about these wicked men. He knew that they held a measure of appeal to his readers. These men were wolves. They were wolves, to be sure. But they were wolves in sheep's clothing. That is to say that even though they were evil, their words and their actions could sometimes have an appearance of godliness and truth verse 4 says that these these sneaky teachers they would turn the grace of God into lewdness meaning they would teach that hey if God is gracious you can do whatever you want can you see why Jude was so concerned about the appeal of such a message Not wanting his community to go astray, Jude wrote forcefully. He did not mince words. And in these next few verses, he gave example after example after example from the Old Testament to demonstrate what happens to those who depart, who apostatize God's truth. He wanted the community to be very clear. That these sneaky men, in verse 4, would not get away with it. And that neither would we if we followed in their footsteps. And so Jude gives three examples in verse 5, in verse 6, and verse 7, and he'll give more later. We'll cover that next week. Three examples that I really wanted to spend a good deal of time on today. The first example is this the example of the Exodus generation. Look at verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward, He destroyed those who did not believe. Jude's point, just as God judged those who apostatized after leaving Egypt, so also God will judge anyone else Who apostatizes? Now, this story that Jude mentions in verse 5 comes out of, we might say, a a number of places in the Old Testament that that speaks of the exodus from Egypt. Most prominently, I look at Numbers chapter 14, and I've listed it there on your outline. Today's outline has more just raw text from the scripture than it does places to take notes. But the reason I've done that is because I want us to see these stories firsthand, And I want you to, to take notes in the margins, if you would, uh, on the outline, something that strikes you as we look at these stories, because they are powerful. First, take a look at numbers 14 verses 11 and 12. And just just to set it up for just a moment, the, the, the people who have left Egypt with Moses, they're starting to grumble. They're starting to complain. They're starting to doubt God. They, they saw all the plagues. They saw the Red Sea part before them. They saw amazing miracles. And now, now they're saying, you know, I don't know about this. I don't know about this journey. I don't know if God's going to lead us. I don't know if God's going to guide us. And they started complaining and grumbling. Then the Lord speaks to Moses. Verse 11 of chapter 14. The Lord said to Moses, how long? How long? How long, Moses, will these people reject me? How long will they not believe me? With all the signs I performed among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. Stop there. Moses is hearing this this threat from God. This complaint of God to, to Moses on behalf, uh, who, who represents the people, and God is saying, Moses, I'm through with this, this people. Look at all I've done for them, all the signs I gave them, and yet now they're walking away again. Are you kidding? Forget it. I'm going to strike them with the pestilence. I'm going to disinherit them. I'm going I'm to remove from them the privileges that I once desired to give to them. And Moses, if we were to read verses 13 to 19, we would read Moses pleading with God, saying, please don't do that. God, keep your promise. I know these people have gone astray. I know they're not worthy of you. But Lord, keep your promise, if only to honor your faithful name. And this is what the Lord says in verse 20. 20 to 23, and I've also added verse 29. Then the Lord said, Okay, I have pardoned according to your word. He listens to Moses and he says, Okay, I agree with you. I will pardon them. I'll pardon them, Moses, according to your word. Based on what you've requested of me, I will pardon them. But then the Lord continues in verse 21. But truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test. Now these ten times, they've not heeded my voice. They certainly... Shall not see the land, the promised land, of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. Verse 29. In fact, the carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness, all of you who were numbered, according to your entire number from 20 years old and above. You say, What? Wait, what? What just happened there? I thought we read verse 20. I thought we read he pardoned and then we read verses 21 22 23 and all the way through to 29 and beyond I've just highlighted some of it and now it looks like he didn't pardon On, on the one hand God says I will pardon them Moses according to your word verse 20 on the other hand God says I will prohibit them from entering the promised land they will die in the wilderness verse 29 and uh, the average reader of scripture, the untrained eye says, "Is God schizophrenic? Is he? Does he not know what he's saying? Is he this dual personality, not knowing what he said over here, and he's making something up over here? How can God pardon a group of people in one breath, verse twenty, and and then?" and then moments later vow that they will die in the wilderness answer there is a difference between eternal and temporal judgment there is a difference between eternal and earthly Judgment. All sin, all apostasy, all departure from God's truth is worthy of judgment. And you can expect to hear from God when you depart from him, when you apostatize, you'll hear from him. But what you hear from God that is to say what kind of judgment you receive it can come in many different forms in this case in numbers 14 when God tells Moses in verse 20 I have pardoned them I take that to mean that God will not be counting that sin against them in eternity. Romans 14.20 is a pretty good indicator. It's pretty clear. It's pretty, in, it's pretty much in plain English that God says, Okay, Moses, on your word, I'll pardon them. Numbers 14.20, among many other texts, by the way, are some of the reasons why I expect to see much, if not most, of the Exodus generation in heaven. When I get there, you say, but Neil, uh, Neil, read Jude again. Read Jude verse five. You, You didn't read it right. Jude five. But I want to remind you, Jude says, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward, he destroyed those who did not believe. That's right. He destroyed them. God did destroy them just as he said he would in numbers fourteen twenty nine, he said their carcasses would die in the wilderness and they did they apostatized they departed from God and they heard from God because of it they were judged they were destroyed in the wilderness but you see that word destroyed in Jude 5 is the Greek word apolumai it's a Greek verb. It's a common Greek verb. Apolumai, from an English standpoint, when we use the word destroyed to translate it, it looks very ominous. And it is ominous. It's a serious word. It means to perish. It means to be destroyed. It means destruction. But you know what's interesting about that Greek word apolumai? Is that more often than not, it doesn't mean eternal destruction. Apolumai can mean physical death. Apalumai can mean physical destruction. Apalumai can mean a physical kind of overthrow, a physical kind of consequence of judgment. And that's exactly what it means in Jude 5. Why? Because of Numbers 14.20 and many other places like it. You see, the Bible is not contradicting itself. God is not schizophrenic. He's not contradicting himself. When Jude 5 says they were destroyed, they were. But don't read into that eternal destruction. That's not necessary. Apollumai often, most often, has to do with physical judgment, physical destruction. Sometimes it can mean eternal destruction. And there are places in which we could point that out. But more often than not, it does not. You also say, but Neil, it also says that they didn't believe. Did you read it, Neil? Look, verse 5. I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed Apollumai, those who did not believe. It says they didn't believe and they were destroyed for it. That's right, it does. At the time God took that vow, in Numbers 14, the Exodus generation was an unbelieving, grumbling, complaining, group of people absolutely unbelieving but that doesn't mean they were always that way in fact Paul goes out of his way Paul goes out of his way to infer that many of these people were in fact Christians on the back of your outline you see from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 I want to read it in its entirety, verses 1 through 12, so you can see what I'm talking about. Paul says this about the exact same group of people. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 12. He says, moreover, brethren, he's talking to Christians here in Corinth, he says, I don't want you to be unaware that all of our fathers who were under the cloud, they all passed through the sea, All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. He's speaking of the Exodus generation there. Verse 5, But with most of them, God was not well pleased. Why? Why was He not well pleased? Because they apostatized. Because they departed. Because they forsook Him. Because they... At one point, having come through the plagues of Egypt, having come through the Red Sea, having been like, my goodness, I can't believe what God is doing for us. At one point, as the the road grew longer, they started to leave God's truth. They started to grumble. They started to complain. They started to go from a state of trust to a state of unbelief. Verse 5 again, 1 Corinthians 10, 5. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Verse 6. Now these things, they became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 of them fell verse 9 nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents verse 10 nor let us complain as some of them complained and were destroyed -um by the destroyer now verse 11 and 12 take good note of this now all these things happened to them As examples. And they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul had confidence that that generation had drank from the same spiritual rock which was Christ in verse 4. But he knew that having come through the good times, so to speak, that when the going got rough, that generation departed. And when they departed, verse 5 of chapter 10, God was not well pleased. And so he destroyed them in the wilderness. When you apostatize you will hear from God. Doesn't mean they went to hell. Why do we have to read it that way so many times? Doesn't mean that they went to hell. (laughs) Jude puts the warning in here because he knows that Christians can do this too. Paul puts the example in here. Because he knows that Christians can do it too. That's why he says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You can do this too. You can fail like them too. And so I'm giving you all of these examples. I'm reminding you not to do it. I'm telling you don't apostatize because you can. You might. You could if you let your guard down. But let's return to where we were in Jude 5 and remember the original point of this example. That is to say when God pardons a group of people in one breath and then later, just moments later, vows that they die in the wilderness, that God is not being schizophrenic. Rather, God is simply showing us firsthand that all apostasy, all departure will be judged. For the non-Christian, if they apostatize, apostatize, all bets are off. The the judgment they receive can and will extend both to this life and to the next. And they will go to hell for unbelief. But for the Christian who apostatizes, to those who are pardoned by faith in Jesus, if we apostatize, our judgment will still come. It may include a great many earthly things, even physical death. But our apostasy will never, never, never result in forfeiture of our place in heaven that is always secured by the promise of god to us above all remember that those who all those who apostatize will be judged the name of our sermon today all apostates receive judgment The Exodus generation apostatized and they died in the desert because of it. So let us take note of that. Look at verse 6 now of Jude. Jude 6. He gives another story. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Whether this speaks of Genesis chapter 6 or perhaps Revelation chapter 12, uh, both of which speak to angels having fallen, we do not know. But given how much Jude compares with the apostle of Peter and his writings, it's likely that Genesis six is most on Jude's mind. Write down Genesis six next to verse six of Jude. Peter alludes to a story uh, to, to the Genesis 6 story in his writings. We don't have time today, however, to delve into the details of Genesis 6. That would take an entire message. Uh, suffice to say that the angels who sinned against God, the angels who departed from God's truth, the angels who apostatized, Jude says they will be judged. They are being judged. And Jude is reinforcing the point that all apostates will be judged. Had we more time, we would delve deeper into verse 6, but I'll leave that for your own readings uh, later on this week. I want to finish by concentrating on verse 7. Verse 7, he gives a third example. A third example of those who apostatize and receive judgment because of it. And then he says in verse 7, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 18 and 19. Abraham, to set up the stage here a little bit. Abraham, the great patriarch, he's meeting with two angels of God in Genesis 18. And these angels are on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah. They kind of indicate to him that they're going to assess the situation. They're going to take stock of what is happening in that region of the world. Abraham knew what they were about to see. And being a wise man, Abraham knew that God would not be pleased with what the angels would, would see. Abraham knew that God would not be pleased with what the angels would see. And so Abraham begins to negotiate. He knows what's possibly ahead. He knows that judgment is coming on that city. He has some family in that city and he's concerned about them. And so he tells the angels, he says, hey, if there's there's 50, 50 righteous people in those cities, will you please spare it? And the angels say, sure, for 50 we will. Liking uh, his answer, he goes a little further. He says, what what about 45? If, if, if If we find 45 righteous people, will you spare the city? And the angels say, sure. Continuing to like his answer, Abraham keeps lowering uh, the, the the milestone a bit. He says, "What about forty? What about thirty? What about twenty? What if I? What if we only find 10, 10 righteous people? Will you spare the city then?" The angels say, "Sure. We will spare it if there are ten righteous men." Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face to the ground, and he said, "Here now, my lords, please turn in to your servants' house and spend the night, and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and, and go on your way." And they said, "No, no, no. We'll spend the night on the open square of your town, Lot. We want to. We want to see the city." Verse three. But Lot insisted strongly. He says, please don't do that. So they turned in to his house and entered his house. Then Lot made them a feast and baked on lemon bread and they ate. Verse 4, Now before they lay down, the men of the city, that is to say the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter, they surrounded the house and they called to the Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. This was the beginning of the end of Sodom and Gomorrah. Early the next morning, as we know the story, Lot and his family fled the area and the angels of God rained down fire and brimstone to destroy the city for their sexual immorality. Yet again, in the spirit of Jude, we might say that all apostasy, all departure from God's truth will be judged. Jude's given three examples now. The Exodus generation, verse 5, the angels of Genesis 6 in verse 6, and now the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. But fewer examples, fewer examples of apostasy are more relevant today than this third one, than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here we are some 4,000 years later, and we are still in the throes of a world embracing rampant sexual immorality. Today, adultery is widespread. Sex outside of marriage is the norm Today, monogamy is mocked, it's laughed at. Today, homosexuality is celebrated. Today, gender identity and gender distinction is being blurred. Today, the word polygamy is now being substituted for a new word, polyamorous, to make it sound more appealing to the ear. This month, the Supreme Court of the United States of America will speak on the issue of homosexuality. Proposition 8, which we know all too well in this state, and the Defense of Marriage Act, the Federal Defense of Marriage Act, is at stake. And they could render a decision as soon as tomorrow, probably later this month. You say, Oh, Neil, here we go. Is it really that important? Come on. Just homosexuality. I mean, is it really that big of a deal? Is, is homosexual marriage really that important? If we lose that battle, is that, a, is that that big of a problem? Can't we all just get along? You know, the world would have you believe that you can. Your news media, TV, TV, The movies, our universities, the cultural elites, all of them would have you believe that it's just no big deal. And they're working tirelessly that you might believe that, that homosexual marriage is no big deal. I beg to differ. I believe this is a watershed moment for our nation. And I'm not alone in that belief, though those people are becoming fewer and farther between. But I want to tell you about a man by the name of Robert George. Dr. Robert George is Princeton law professor and director of the James Madison Program of American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton. He is a graduate of Swarthmore College, Harvard Law School, and Oxford University. He is the author of many books and articles on morality, marriage, natural and constitutional law, Dr. Robert George is a well-regarded scholar, well-respected by those of different ideologies and political persuasions. He was appointed by President Clinton in 1993 to the United States Council on Civil Rights, where he served until 1998. In 2002, he was appointed by President George W. Bush to the President's Council on Bioethics, where he served until 2009. And just last year, he was appointed by Speaker of the House John Boehner to the U.S. Commission of International Religious Freedom, which is a position he still holds today. Current Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan once praised Dr. George as, quote, one of the nation's most respected legal theorists. She said her respect for Robert George was based on, quote, his sheer brilliance, the analytic power of his arguments, the range of his knowledge, and a deeply held, principled conviction, a profound and enduring integrity. Clinton, Bush, Boehner, Kagan, all shapes and sizes of the political spectrum and ideology. I give this man such a grand introduction With lavish praise from many different people, to draw deep and abiding attention to the statement Dr. George made just two months ago. Last April, he was invited to speak to the Sutherland Institute, which is a public policy think tank. And at one point in his speech, he addressed the implications of homosexual marriage on society at large, if it is accepted. He addressed the implications of homosexual marriage in society at large if it is accepted, particularly its implication on religious freedom. And this is what he says. You can fill in the blank on the back of your outline. He wrote, he said, Some people think that we should retreat from the fight for marriage and just fight for religious liberty. Folks, I'm here to tell you, if you lose the fight for marriage, there will be no protecting religious liberty. Some people think we should retreat from the fight for marriage and just fight for religious liberty. Folks, I'm here to tell you, if you lose the fight for marriage, there will be no protecting religious liberty. I share Dr. George's concern that once homosexual marriage is called good in this nation, it will be the beginning of the end of our ability to practice our faith freely. Just ask the Boy Scouts. Ask the Boy Scouts how free they felt to practice their religious beliefs in the last few months. So free were they that they ended up changing their beliefs about homosexuality due to such intense public ridicule and pressure. They buckled under its weight. Do you really suppose that that same pressure that was applied to the Boy Scouts will not be applied to the church if homosexual marriage becomes a civil right in America? If you do believe that, you're naive. You're fooling yourself. Because what we saw with the Boy Scouts is exactly what will happen to the church in America if at the highest echelons of our justice system, they deem it appropriate that homosexual marriage be an institution in this nation. This is a watershed moment in American history. What we decide on this matter is being watched in the heavens just as God commissioned the angels in Genesis 18 to go and see what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. God is now wanting to see what our people will do. Will we apostatize Will we depart from God's truth? If we do, if you do, expect judgment. If our nation does, expect judgment upon our nation. Billy Graham recounts a story in which his wife was editing a book of his. He writes, Some years ago my wife Ruth was reading the draft of a book I was writing, when she finished a section describing the terrible downward spiral of our nation's moral standards and the idolatry of worshiping false gods such as technology and sex, she startled me by saying, quote, if God doesn't punish America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Our nation is beginning to walk away from God's truth. Many Christians are even embracing the homosexual lifestyle. Many Christians are opening up their arms to homosexual marriage, thinking that it's no big deal. My friends, this should not be. Do not apostatize. Do not depart from God's truth. Don't kid yourselves either. What happened to the Boy Scouts, will happen to the church if our nation embraces this sin. And so we need resolve. And that resolve comes from the book of Deuteronomy. I'd like you to turn there in closing. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We need resolve. And when the people of Israel needed resolve, God knew where to direct their attention. And this is what he told them to do. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 15. Deuteronomy 6, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 15. This is the resolve we must have at a time such as this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities, which you did not build, houses full of all good things, which you did not fill, hewn out wells, which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant, which you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him and you shall take oaths in His name. You shall not go after other gods, the God of the peoples who are all around you, for the Lord your God is a jealous God among you. Let the, ang- lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we know the departure from your truth incurs judgment. And we don't want to be anywhere near it. God, Forgive us for ways in which we've assumed wrongly that your truth doesn't matter. Forgive us for assuming that your truth is old, antiquated, outdated. Oh Lord, whether it's 4,000 years ago or whether it's this day and age, we look at your word, we look at your truth, and we want to stand on it. We don't want to depart, we don't want to, to apostatize. We want to embrace it, we want to celebrate it, we want to teach it, we want to train our children in it that we might not, when days of blessing have come and gone that we might not depart from your truth. God, we don't know what the future holds for our nation. You will work it out in your good timing, God. As for us, as for we and our house, we will serve you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.